read about a pastor who was celebrating his 30 years in ministry, and he talked about the very first church he served in at the age of 23. And he said that the church that he was serving in had a strong impact in its community, but because of infighting within the church family, the size of the church had dwindled to just a handful of people. The pastor shared that when he started, the church was vibrant. The church was doing great things, but as the church grew and as the church impacted the community, he began to witness something that nearly killed the church. It was two things that almost killed this church. It was manipulation and intimidation. Because there were members of the church who thought that because they had been there the longest, they had the same. In business meetings, it was the one who shouted the loudest that became the most intimidating to the others who were there. And they did this by bullying and cowing others towards their thoughts and their ways. Yet there were good people in this church. There were good people who wanted to do great things, but they were worn down by the browbeating and just the constant intimidation and the constant manipulation. And here's the thing that I realize when I read stories about churches like this, and I read churches that struggle sometimes, and it's in your outline this morning, and the thought is this. Godly people do not enjoy fighting. But ungodly people thrive on it. Godly people don't want to fight within the church. Godly people want to see things done for God's glory. It's sometimes when those who act ungodly, they're the ones who thrive on the confusion within the body of Christ. They're the ones who think that manipulation and intimidation is something that they can handle. And through those means, they are unable to be stopped. The pastor went on to share that by the grace of God, the church survived. By the grace of God, the church was blessed to do great ministry in and around the community. And more importantly, the body of Christ grew as new believers came into the church. But something that I keep learning over and over and over again is simply this thought that one of the enemy's strategies to destroy the work of the people of God is manipulation and intimidation. The devil will manipulate you. The devil will sneak in and say, you know what, you're doing a good job. Just stay the course. The devil will sneak in and say, listen, why ask for anybody to come alongside and work with you as you're doing these things for God? Do them so you can be saved. Do them so you can make a name for yourself. And the other side of that is when the devil sneaks into our ears and says, listen, if they won't listen to you, intimidate them. If they won't do what God is going to do, tell them it's either my way or the highway. And it's a scary thought to think that way. It's a scary thought to think there are churches today who operate under these two umbrellas. I've heard the horror story, and you have as well. Listen, I have seen where a pastor comes into the church and he thinks he is the church. And everything goes and everything starts and everything stops through his words. I've also seen in churches where it's not the pastor, but it's been from within the pews that you see things like this happen. 
So why bring this up on a Sunday morning? We're here to worship. We're here to focus on the things of God. Simply for this reason. As we've been watching this building project take its place through the book of Nehemiah, we have learned over the last three weeks how the enemy has tried to rear his ugly head. The enemy has done everything he can to slow down and stop the progress. And we've seen this trickle-down effect. Well, the devil's going to have one more opportunity this morning to try to halt what God is already doing. Because Nehemiah is going to be dealing with some things this morning as you look at Nehemiah chapter 6. So go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn there this morning. Nehemiah chapter 6, we learn of the issues that Nehemiah is still wrestling with today. The headaches he's still having to put up with as he is doing what God has called him to do. Now remember that in all the things we have read when it comes to what Nehemiah, the work he is doing, he didn't get up one morning and say, you know what, I am bored. I want to go do something to make a name for myself. No, we learned in the very first chapter of Nehemiah that it was God who placed this problem and this thought on his heart after he heard the report of the condition of the wall. It was God who led him to prayer. It was God who led him to talk to King Artaxerxes after Weeks and weeks of praying. It was God who gave him safe passage. It was God who helped him lead the people to start the work on these walls of Jerusalem. And as he has done this great work, as he has done what God has called him to do, we have seen the enemy rear his head and try to slow down the progress and stop it completely. This morning is no different. In my copy of God's Word, chapter 6, the header in my Bible says, Conspiracy against Nehemiah. There are those still trying to halt the progress. This morning, we're going to see this journey take place through a, through, through a few different obstacles. We're going to see this morning right off the bat, the opposition to the completion of the walls, manipulation and intimidation. We're going to see opposition because even with all the work that Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem are doing, there is still opposition. There are those who don't want to see the work get done. And what you're going to learn this morning in these first 14 verses is we're going to see this in different phases. So phase one is simply this, false friendship. False friendship. Look with me in your copy of God's Word, Nehemiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now it happened when Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the walls, and that there were no breaks left in it, though at the time I had not hung the doors and the gates. That Sambalat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together among the battle villages on the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. Realizing that the walls were close to being completely rebuilt, the strategy now shifts gears. The strategy
strategy is from this point to this point forward, rather, they realize Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem have all realized they have failed. They threatened him by coming to attack him. They ridiculed him and mocked him and made fun of him. Now we read in God's word that they decided that, you know what, we've got to try a different way. So let's do something a little different. Let's invite him to meet with us. Let's invite him down to the plain of Ono, which is about 20, 27, 28 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It's kind of the halfway point for Sam Valdez and Samaria to Jerusalem. And their thing is, let's get him to come and just hang out with us. Because you see in their words, it's almost as if they are paying him a compliment. If you look there at verse 2, they're saying, listen, let's get together and let's work things out. They're trying to appeal to Nehemiah's accomplishment. They're trying to appeal to his pride. And they're trying to really appeal to his sense of reasoning. And really, if we were going to say this in a different vernacular, I think that their message could be said like this. We recognize we have openly ridiculed you in the work you have been doing, but we are big enough to admit we were wrong. You accomplished a great feat, and we have the utmost respect for you and your ability to assert yourself to become such a powerful and influential man. As like-minded men of renown, we have renowned ourselves as fellow leaders of our people. Let us come together for a summit where we can celebrate your success and converse our mutual goals and advancement in this region. Another translation for that is called baloney. They are trying to flatter them. Listen, it's, it's kind of like that friend who goes to apologize to you, but you know they're not apologizing to you. I was wrong. You were better than I was. That's what it sounds like they're saying. But in their hearts, we know what their plan is. And even Nehemiah acknowledges this. Nehemiah acknowledges that they intended to harm him. The reason for them bringing him to where they were was they were going to get him outside of town. They'd get him away from everybody. And once he got there, things were not going to go well for him. It reminds me of what took place with Pope John the 13th, who ruled there in the 1400s. Pope John the 13th had a problem with one of Martin Luther's heroes, a man named John Huss. John Huss came to realize that the scriptures were the sole authority for the believers. Now you have to remember, in the early church, the Pope was the authority of the scripture. The Pope said what scripture meant what scripture stood for. But then John Huss showed up. And John Huss said that no, Scripture stands on its own. Scripture is the sole authority for the believer. And he was so certain of this because the issue was happening. You've got Pope John Thirteenth there. He was selling, he was really, what he was doing was he was exploiting the church. He was selling indulgences. That's a big fancy word in the Catholic Church back in the 1400s. Indulgences you can purchase to get somebody out of purgatory. In the Catholic Church, the mindset was this. Do you have a loved one that's gone to hell? Well, if you pay a certain amount, we can get them out. 
And there are people who believe this. And so the church would sell these indulgences so their friends, so the members could get their loved ones out of purgatory. Well, John Huss sees this and he is outraged because Scripture does not preach on that. Scripture does not show that. And so you have the Pope on this side, you have John Huss on this side who's preaching that Scripture stands alone as the only authority. You've got the Pope saying, I'm in control. To make matters worse, the Roman Empire at the time, the Roman Empire at the time, Emperor Sigmund, he urged Huss to come to a meeting. He urges John Huss to come to this meeting and says, hey, we're getting this council together and we're going to rewrite and restructure how the church is thinking. Well, John Huss thought this is the greatest idea he ever heard. And he willingly went to this meeting. Well, he gets to the meeting and finds out that it's not a meeting to restore the church. It was a meeting to arrest him and put him on trial. It was a meeting that would bring him before these religious leaders and ask him to denounce the very statement he made saying that the scriptures stood for themselves. And he would not waver. He would not change his thinking. He would go on to say when he was railroaded by this council to want to make a different statement. These were his words. I appeal to Jesus Christ, the only judge who is almighty and completely just. In his hands, I plead my cause, not on the basis of false witnesses or erring counsels, but on truth and justice. In 1415, John Huss was burned at the stake because of his beliefs. As he is dying on a stake, as it's being burned, he is reciting the Psalms because he was going to stand in his ground. John Huss fell for the trap put on by the Roman Empire. Nehemiah was not going to fall for the trap from his enemies. And notice his reasoning behind not even going in the first place. Look back at me at verse number three. He says, I sent them messengers. I sent them back messengers saying, I am doing a great work for I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But go to verse four. Notice the persistence of Sanballat and Geshem. They sent him this message not once, not twice, but four times. Four times they tried to plead with him to come down, to appease him, to let him respond to what was going on, to encourage him in their mind. Yet Nehemiah's, Nehemiah's focus was on what God had put into his heart. If there is ever a word to describe a believer who makes a profound impact in the kingdom, it's the word focused. How do you know somebody is impacting the kingdom of God? They are focused on the things of God. They're not allowing distractions to come in. They're not letting outside forces steer them in different directions. A person who is following the will of God is following the history because they have a focused intention. They have a focused desire to please God. That is Nehemiah. Nehemiah is so focused on the things of God, he doesn't have time to stop. He doesn't have time to let the work come to a halt. 
I think Nehemiah's message that we read here is similar to what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, where Paul said these words, Brethren, I do not count myself to have ever hindered, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. For Paul, it was about moving forward. For Paul, it was about doing the things that God had placed in his heart to reach the world of Jesus Christ. For Nehemiah, it's doing the things that God had placed on his heart to see the walls become completed. But I think we also see in Nehemiah the attitude that our Lord and Savior had when he told the disciples in John 4, 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That was on Nehemiah's part. Nehemiah would not allow himself to be distracted from completing the task that his heavenly father had for him. But what I want you to see this morning is that not only what Nehemiah says is revealing, but what he does not say is revealing as well. Nehemiah doesn't give in to the temptation of pride. Nehemiah doesn't become overwhelmed by a sense of praise from others. Nehemiah keeps to himself in such a way that pride can't sneak in. That praise doesn't have its place in his life. Yes, he knows he's accomplishing a great thing. But nowhere in Scripture do we see Nehemiah stand before the people as the walls are coming up and the gates are being restored. Not once we hear Nehemiah say, look at me. Look what I did. Look what I accomplished. No. Nehemiah said every time, look what God did. Look what God accomplished. Look at what God is doing. We see the evidence of this as we read through the scripture, we see the evidence of him. As you jump down to verse 9 for a second, I want to show you the evidence. The evidence is here. He says there in verse 9, they were all trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened in the work and won't be done. But then he says this short little prayer. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my Nehemiah, we have seen over and over that he is continuously dependent on God to protect him from the sin of pride, but also at the same time, give him the courage to complete the task. And Nehemiah can see through their plan. Nehemiah can see what they're trying to accomplish. Because think about it. How could men who have come alongside Nehemiah and threaten the lives of the workers now turn around and say, you know what, Have those been the words of Sam Ballard? 
to this passage being greatly different. But these aren't the words of St. John. His words are false witness. His words are those of a wicked man. And Nehemiah will not be misled because he realizes bad company corrupts good character. So we see there that first phase. We see that first phase as being false friendship. But then we go to the second phase we see in Scripture, subversive slander. Well, he's not going to come to us, then we're going to throw false accusations. We're going to slander his name. Look at me in verses 5 through 9 in Nehemiah chapter 6. Now remember, four times, Sam Ballad had been trying to convince Nehemiah to come meet them. Let's have a powwow. Let's have this summit. Let's get our region in check. Notice now in verse 5. Send, then Sam Ballad and his servants sent to me as before the fifth time with an open letter in his hand. And notice what the letter says, starting in verse 6. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. And you have appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king, so come, therefore, let us consult together. Then I said to him, saying, No such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your heart, for they were all trying to make us afraid, saying, that their hands will be weakened in the work and will not be done. Now therefore, O oh God, strengthen my hands. When Sam Ballard realizes this parlay won't take place at the four tribes, he uses a new tactic. He sends him an open letter accusing him of doing things against the king. He tells Nehemiah, the only reason you're doing this is so you can be the man. You're only doing this so they'll call you the king, and when the king finds out, he's going to get very upset with you. Because Sam Ballad is now telling Nehemiah, we're going to send these false accusations to King Artaxerxes. Because guess what? When he hears this word, boy, are you in trouble. You're going to get it. Because here we are, we're trying to be nice, but you're not listening, Nehemiah. So we're going to take things into our own hand, and we're going to create a false statement against you and against the work you're doing, that way we're going to get your attention and that way somebody else can handle what obviously we're not able to handle. Again, notice the response from Nehemiah in verse 8. He calls them out on it. He says, none of these things have been happening. He says, what you're spreading is an invention of your heart. It's at that moment Nehemiah has to come before a holy God and ask God to strengthen his hands. It's the same response you and I as believers should have when the devil tries to frighten us. When the devil says, listen, you're not following God like you should. You're not listening to what God is telling you to do. And you're not serving God as you should. Because if you're doing the right things as you're supposed to, you know that is a lie from Satan. You know that is a false accusation. And it's at that moment, at that moment when Satan says, listen, you're doing a bad 
following Jesus. You're not doing your Bible reading every day like you should. That's okay. We'll get to it next week. You're not involved in church like you should be, but that's okay. When you know you're doing the thing you're supposed to be doing, that's when you cry out to God and say, God, strengthen me. Because the devil will do everything he can to cause you to fall further from trusting in God. Nehemiah had to place his complete trust in God and knew that once he placed his trust in God, he could stand courageously and stand before those enemies and say, what you're saying is false. Because I am serving God. I am living for God. And I am worshiping, worshiping Him through my service. But there's another phase. I told you there are three phases in this first section. That phase three is compromised commitment. Think about everything we've seen so far this morning. We've seen men say, hey, can't we all just get along? And that hasn't worked. Now we're going to send a letter to the king saying, you've been a bad boy. You're trying to be in charge. We're going to get you in trouble. And again, that doesn't work. So notice phase three. Because phase three is going to involve Nehemiah potentially compromising his commitment to God. Look at me in verse 10. Afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the, the son of Mehetabel, who was a secret informer. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. And I said, should such a man as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Verse 12. Then I perceived that God had not sent him at all, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way in sin so that they might have cause for an evil report that they might reproach me, my God. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat according to these their works. And the prophetess Nodea and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid. In this section of scripture, we see two temptations that Nehemiah faces to compromise his commitment to God. The first one comes from the prophet Shemaiah, and his prophecy is simple. He tells Nehemiah, listen, the enemy is coming. Listen, you got to hide. So here's the plan. Go hide in the temple. Go hide in the temple. They won't find you in there. There's a problem with that. Nehemiah has no standing to go in the temple. Nehemiah can't go in the temple. Why? He's not a priest. He's not even a Levite. He has no right, no standing to enter into the temple. Only the priests could go into the temple. Only the Levites could go in there. So if Nehemiah goes into the temple, he now has compromised his God and they can bring an evil report against him. So he says, listen, here's why you need to go to the temple. And the temptation is twofold. And I didn't put it in your outline, but I want you 
coming to kill you. They are coming to take you out. You need to go hide. Go hide from them in the temple. They will look at you. Go hide and you will be saved. But that second thought, it's on the screen. It would be a disregard for God's law concerning your being forbidden to enter the temple since you're not a priest to save your life. Listen, had Nehemiah gone into the temple, he would be committing a capital offense. Sam Ballot and Tobias, they knew this. They knew that they could have Nehemiah executed had he gone into the temple. And their hands would have been dirty. Because they paid somebody to give this false prophecy. Again, look at verse 10 and 11. There's the prophecy. Nehemiah, go hide in the temple. Verse 11. Why should I do that? Why should I even think about hiding in the temple? Then verse 12. Look at the wording. I perceived that God had not sent him, but that he pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Samballad had hired him. Samballad and Tobiah, they bring over Shemaiah over to the side and say, listen, we're going to put a little something in your pocket. Here's what you need to tell Nehemiah. And this man was willing to do it. This man was willing to do this to put Nehemiah in jeopardy. Yet that's why we read in verse 14, Nehemiah knows this is going to happen. And again in verse 14, he says, My God, remember Tobiah and Samballat according to these, their work. And the prophetess Nodea and the rest of the prophets who have made me afraid. Listen, that prayer almost sounds vindictive. God, he says, God, you know what they did? Him. But I'm reminded of this, that Nehemiah, every time he prayed, Nehemiah's prayer is God-centered, not Nehemiah-centered. His prayers are always God-centered. Nehemiah never says, God, they're doing it again. God, they're making my life miserable. God, I can't handle it. You send like a lightning bolt down on Sam Mountain. Just, and Tobiah, don't get him. The air guy get him too. Those folks down south there get. No, we never see that from Nehemiah. He says, God, do your will. The enemy's attack was to intimidate Nehemiah to put an end to the work that God had been doing. But God had put in Nehemiah's heart and ordained his people to do the work. And this is this beautiful thought here. It is impossible for Nehemiah to be committed to God's call in his life and at the same time not be in opposition to those who oppose God, the people of God, and the mission of God. Listen, church, pay attention here. When you're doing what God has called you to do, there are going to be people who are opposed to And guess what? A lot of times the people who are opposed to what God is doing in you and through you are not outside the walls of the church. The people who are going to oppose you are the people sometimes who are sitting in the pew right next to you. Because they don't want to see God do great things. They want to try to slow God down from doing what he has called his people to do. Nehemiah knew that there would be those who oppose God, who would oppose the people of God and the mission of God. And Nehemiah in his thinking, I think when we read verse 14, I think Nehemiah is praying in the spirit of David. When he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
in Psalm 68, verse 1, he said, David said these words, Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let those who also hate him flee before him. I think that is in Nehemiah's heart as he prayed to God, remember the things that Sam Bowden and Tobiah are doing. God, remember their works. God, you are in control. I truly believe that when Nehemiah prays this prayer in verse 14, he's praying in the spirit of David in Psalm 68, 1. But I think also he's praying in line with what Jesus Christ says about the future. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 24 and 25, Scripture says this, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of, to God the Father, when he puts to an end all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. I truly believe that Nehemiah is praying that kind of prayer. That God, you're in control. That God, you put the enemy under your feet. God, your will be done. God, you scattered the enemy. I truly believe in my heart that is what he is praying. And here's my thought. As I'm thinking about what God called me to do, and I think about those who try to deter, deter what God has placed in the heart of his church, are your prayers, are my prayers in line with the prayers and the purposes of Nehemiah and David and the Lord Jesus Christ as they are in these passages? Am I praying for God's will to be done? And am I praying for Him to handle my enemies? Am I praying for Him to be sovereign? Am I praying for Him to be in rule over all things? Because what I'm praying needs to line up with what God's Word says. My prayers need to line up in the same as what Jesus prays, as what David prays, even as Nehemiah prays. Again, when Nehemiah prays, it's a God-centered prayer, not a Nehemiah-centered prayer. But then we get to one more little section here in Scripture. And it's the best news we can have after the last three chapters we've been dealing with. All the headache and the heartache and the hassle and the strife and the bickering, and the complaining, and the moaning, and the grumbling, and the whining, and the crying. We finally get the declaration of the completion of the law. We get affirmation and authentication. Look at verse 15. So the law was finished on the 25th day of Elu in 52 days. In the midst of the gossip, the entry, the instigating, in the midst of everything that went around and on with Nehemiah and the wall, he affirms what the people heard and he attests to the validity by stating the actual date the wall was complete. He gives the actual date and he also says, here's the date the wall was finished. Oh, by the way, here's how long it took. 52 days. After six months, when Nehemiah first heard of the condition of the walls of Jerusalem, while being the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes, while everything seemed insurmountable, he completes the task. So here's the question I want to think about for just a moment. Why was the work completed in a timely manner? Think about it. 52 days. They complete that whole wall. Put all the gates in place. Everything is back to what it used to look like. 
So why work at a time of man? I think there's a couple of reasons here. First, Nehemiah was committed to the glory of God and the removal of the reproach that it comes to the people of God. Remember why Nehemiah is doing this. For God to get the glory, but also to remove the sin that was on the people. That's the first reason it's done in a timely manner. The second reason was because Nehemiah prayerfully and actively trusted in the Lord to give him and the people success in doing the work. Think about it. We learned from the very first chapter of Nehemiah 1 that Nehemiah is a man of prayer. He prays about everything. As we should. He prays about an opportunity to go. He prays about getting there. He prays as the work being done. He prays as the enemy is upon them. He prays, but only does he pray that he actively trusted in God to give him what he needed to accomplish the task and be successful for him. But here's the best part. Third, the people of God join together cooperatively and enthusiastically to rebuild the wall. Listen, it's one thing to have a leader make a statement, it's one thing to have a leader to be involved, it's another thing for the people of God to join forces. It's another thing for the people of God to walk alongside and do the work. Why does the wall get done in a timely manner? Because they all had a mind to work. These three reasons were the recipe for a successful, not only an execution, but a completion of God's purpose for His people. God shows Himself to be a strong God, to be an amazing God, who works on behalf of the people and through His people when the people of God follow His strategy. And because of that, Nehemiah makes that declaration. And we read that in verse 15. And we finished on the 25th day of Elu after 52 days of work. And man, you talk about rejoicing. Talk about a celebration that should have been taking place. Like with every one of these last few chapters, I've made this thing before. Man, I want to stop here. I want to stop here and go, man, God is so good. God is awesome. God has done this great work. God has been doing these great things. And man, God showed up and showed out. But you've got to get the last few verses of this chapter. Because we have one more issue. And that is the reaction to the completion of the wall. Deflation and aspiration. Notice two things in these last few verses. Verse 16, we see the reaction at large. Look at me in verse 16 as we wrap up our time this morning here. Verse 16. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us saw these things, that they were very disheartened in their own eyes. For they perceived that the work was done by our God. The nations see. The nations look. And they say, oh my goodness. Look what God has done. Not what Nehemiah has done. Not what the people of Jerusalem have done. But look at what God has done. Did you catch the phrase there in verse 16? It says, when all our eyes heard of it, and the nations saw these things, they were disheartened in their eyes. In the Hebrew text, 
That phrase literally says, when all our enemies heard and all the surrounding nations saw, they spelled greatly in their eyes. And it shows us and gives us an indication to what the people's problem outside of the city of Jerusalem were. Sam Ballot and Tobiah and all those people thought they were great in their own eyes. They thought they could oppose God successfully and they thought they could oppose the people of God. The enemy overestimated God's strength and they underestimated the people of God but God was something through God's strength. And listen, anyone who would try to explain the efficiency of Nehemiah, anybody who would try to say, listen, it's because Nehemiah is a great motivator, Nehemiah is a great leader, he put a great team together, he had people who knew what they were doing, people would come with a list of things from over and over and over and over and over. Yet, Nehemiah would say, no, we didn't do this, God did. Now you have vindication and validation when the nations surrounding Jerusalem say, God did that. He used Nehemiah, and he used the people, but God did that. God rebuilt those walls. God refortified that city. God is protecting them. God did those things. Because again, verse 16 says, literally, the enemy, the enemy surrounding Judah knew these things. Everyone knew who had accomplished this great work. Not only did the people of God know because they've seen it, but also the enemies of God knew this truth. And because the enemies of God know the truth, they stand there stunned and in disbelief. And it's almost as if before they heard the final news, they're walking around their shoulders held high, their head held high. Scripture says they hear the news, and they kind of go like this. They knew this better. They knew they could not stop God or the people of God. Remember Sam Valentin recruited the nation around Judah. He'd been trying to get them to oppose who God was only for God to display his magnificent work and his accomplishments to a larger audience. Think about that for a moment. Sam Ballard could have been the only person who got bent out of shape over all this. Remember, he calls all the surrounding enemies. We need to stop Nehemiah. We need to stop what's going on in Jerusalem. We need to put a stop to it all. And now all of them see what God has done. One commentary writer put it this way. Judah's enemies tried to make Nehemiah the Jews afraid. But in the end, it was the enemies who were afraid. And these events foreshadow what is going to happen on a grander scale when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords returns. Take your Bibles for just a second. Turn over to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. I want to give you the coming attractions this morning. You know when you go to the movies, you see the previews? And I have determined something, and this is not part of the message, but this is a freebie. I have now learned that if you're going to go to the movie at 4 o'clock, this show is 4.30, you're going to get 30 minutes previews. But I want to show you this preview because it's worth the price of admission. Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. This is what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. This is what's going to happen to the enemies of God. Psalm chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Why do the nations rage? 
And the people plotted vain things. The king of kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers to take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision, and he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasing. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill, Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nation of your inheritance and the ends of the earth of your possessions. And you shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall dash them into pieces like a potter's Vessels. God is telling us that one day the Son is going to do to the enemies kind of what Nehemiah has done. Nehemiah has followed God's word. Nehemiah has followed God's plan and the enemies have been crushed. And one day they're going to be crushed forever. But I told you about the reaction of the Lord real quickly. Let me show you the reaction of a few because the story's not over yet. Even though he faced the reality of God and he faced the reality of having to rebuild the walls, even though there was defense and opposition, the reality is Nehemiah still has to continue with it. Listen, yes, the walls are built. Praise God. But it doesn't stop. It never stops. Remember Tobiah? In chapter 2, verse 10, we learned that Tobiah is an Ammonite servant. Well, again, we read about Tobiah. He's not a Jew, but he's also an enemy to the Jew. Look at it real quickly in verses 17 and through 19 as we finish out this chapter this morning. And in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah. The letters of Tobiah came to me. For many in Judah were pledged to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and the son of Gehanna, and married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Arah. And they reported his good speeds to me, and reported my words to him. Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. We read in this passage that we're not done. Nehemiah is not done with the hassle and the headache. Tobiah is sending letters to those inside the wall saying, hey, how are things really going? What kind of job is Nehemiah doing? And these nobles are sending letters back to Tobiah. And what we're seeing here is we're seeing treachery. We're seeing people within the city walls giving information to someone outside the city walls. And verse 18 makes everything worse. Verse 18, we find out that this man who is not a Jew, this man who is an Amorite, is married to a predominant Jewish family. He's married into the family. He's married to significant people within the walls of Jerusalem. So he gets reports about how things are really going. And he sends reports in return. And then things get a little more interesting. Look at verse 19. Also they reported his good deeds to me. and reported my words to him. Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. It's amazing to think that any devout Jew would secretly oppress and cooperate with an enemy who was as bad as Tobiah, especially those who were in the city walls 
these nobles are cooperating with Tobiah. They're resisting the Lord and they're disobeying the word and they're jeopardizing their own future. These enemies are attempting to get Nehemiah to still compromise his calling. They're still tempting him just as Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Listen, Nehemiah should be on a spiritual high because God has done this great thing. Yet the enemy is still attacking. Yes, it's the opposite of what Jesus dealt with. When Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days is when the enemy attacked him at his lowest point. Here the enemy is attacking Nehemiah at his highest point. But being a godly man, Nehemiah would not be diverted from understanding God's purpose for his life. In the same way, Jesus Christ, when he was tempted in the wilderness, would not be deterred from his mission of redemption for me and for you. And the last time your ally is simply this today. Success in the Christian life requires the believer to have a clear understanding of God's word and will and a steadfast determination to fulfill it. You want to know what God's plan for your life is this morning? Read his word. You want to know what God wants you to do with your life? Talk to him. Follow him. Listen to him. But you know what? As great as all these things are we've seen this morning, as great as it is to see God do this wondrous work for Nehemiah, well, let me give you a reminder this morning in the last few minutes here. None of this happens if Nehemiah does not have a relationship with God. If Nehemiah doesn't know who God is, none of this takes place. The walls do not get rebuilt in 52 days. But that last statement that you just wrote out your outline this morning, the only way this statement will ever be true, the only reason this statement can ever be applied to your life is first, you have to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You have to know that Jesus died for your sins and was placed in the tomb and rose three days later. You have to believe that it's true. And the only way you can believe that is by confessing that you are a sinner and that Jesus had to die for you. It's when you understand that that this statement that we just put here this statement you can stand on. When you know that Jesus Christ died for your sins, when you know that Jesus Christ loved you that much, then you can stand on His Word. And you can learn to understand His Word. And learn to understand His will for your life. And have a determination that is set from Him, not from yourself. But it only happens if you have a relationship with Him. This morning, this statement is only true. You know who Jesus is. Every hand out and every eye closed. This morning we've looked at the completion of the wall. This morning we continue to see an enemy who is trying to stop Nehemiah. Now to the point of wanting to kill him. And trying to get him away from his work. But if you stop for just a moment and think just for a, a, for a moment how Nehemiah's life kind of parallel to what Jesus was doing? Think about the times the enemy tried to stop Jesus from doing his mission and his ministry. Now, I'm not putting Nehemiah in the same ballpark as our Lord and Savior. But you see some characteristics here this morning. Nehemiah was not going to be deterred from doing what God had called him to do. Jesus Christ was not going to stop doing what he was called to do. 
when the enemy tried to stop him as well. This morning, I don't know what you're dealing with. This morning, I don't know how the enemy is bombarding you, messing with you, making your life miserable. I don't know. But I do know that Jesus is Lord and Savior of your life. If Jesus is leading you and Jesus is guiding you, then you have to be able to stand on His word and to trust Him. But again, that happens only by knowing Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. This morning, you may already know who Jesus is. You may have made that decision years ago. But you kind of slipped away because you allowed the enemy to tell you that you can do other things. You can try to hang a life on your own instead of letting God lead you. Again, I don't know what you're dealing with or what you're facing this morning. But in a moment, we're going to stand and sing a very familiar hymn. Reminding us where Jesus places us when the enemy comes. Where Jesus places us when we need his help and need his guidance. So this morning, as we stand and sing in just a moment, my prayer is that you would do business with Jesus. And that you would let him lead and guide you this morning. Father, as we come to this moment of invitation, Father, we come to this specific time. Father, we do it with a heart that is open. Father, earlier this morning we sang the song, Open the Eyes of My Heart. I want to see you. Father, we want that to happen at this very moment. Because we've already seen you today. We have seen you as we have praised you. We have seen you as we have proclaimed your word. But Father, Father, right now, open the eyes of individuals to let them see where they are with you today. Father, move in the hearts of individuals. Father, for some it may be coming to you for the very first time and asking to be forgiven of sin. Father, for others it may just be coming down and Father, to pray for restoration, Father, to pray for uh, a renewing, Father, to pray for a rededication. Father, whatever the need is, the prayer right now is that we, as individuals, would do business with you. And that, Father, most importantly, you would do business with us. So, Father, use this time and may this time glorify you in who you are and what you do. Father, we pray these things in your son's, son's precious and holy name. Amen. Let's all